February, it is February the 8th, 2024, the year of our Lord, and welcome to this program, Leaders on the Frontier. I'm David Least, your, your proud host of Leaders on the Frontier, and uh, we're delighted to be able to come to you um, as we start off uh, this uh, brand new year of 2024. And by golly, there's some significant positive decisions, and I'm uh, delighted if you haven't heard that the Emergencies Act is uh, was ruled unconstitutional. Indeed, the federal court found the Trudeau government's um, use of the Emergencies Act was illegal and unconstitutional, period. So that is a terrific victory, and we want to talk about why uh, that decision is so critical and what it means to you. And so we're delighted that you as an audience could join us on X and also YouTube live. And uh, we're going to get in quite a conversation. So we welcome you to think about your questions and comments because we have an extraordinary guest with us today from the, uh, the executive director of the Canadian Constitutional Foundation, which is one of the lead plaintiffs on this matter. And that executive director is uh, Joanna Barron. So welcome, Joanna. We're so glad you could join us. So great to be here with you and with the audience. First off the bat, congratulations to you and your incredible team at the uh, Canadian Constitutional Foundation. Um, you must be just over the top when it came to receiving that decision, Joanna. Yeah, I have to say we were split on the team. We, uh, we did not we weren't necessarily expecting this because as a legal charity that takes the government to court every day, um, we're used to losing a lot, right? The tradition, yeah. and maybe we'll get into this, of Canadian judges, they tend to be very deferential to government policy and government decision making. Um, so I have to say this was an extraordinarily welcome surprise, uh, but we think it's because the, the law was very clear and Justice Mosley correctly applied the law. Well, it was a great decision. Uh, I encourage people to read it. You can find it online. Uh, be sure to check out the website of the Canadian Constitutional Foundation. It does great work. And so we're going to talk more about uh, what that foundation does. So what is the mission of uh, the Canadian Constitutional Foundation? So it's actually the Canadian Constitution Foundation. Small Constitution, small. pardon me, yeah. slip of the tongue. Small addendum. That's okay. I think I made the same mistake when I started uh, this job many years ago. Um, so we are a, a legal charity and our mission is to defend fundamental freedoms in courts of law and public opinion. So the bulk of what we do is public interest litigation, basically taking the government to court when they violate our rights as Canadians. But we also do a lot of educational programming. We put out free courses, free ebooks. Uh, we consult with parliament. We give uh, testimony in committees when we think a law is proposed that we think has constitutional issues. Um, but one of the things that makes us truly unique is we are the only um, libertarian oriented uh, legal group in Canada that regularly takes the government to court. Okay, so that you do very special work, uh, Joanna, you and your team, because um, you, along with a handful of others, like I think of the Justice Center, are really standing up for Canadians' rights and freedoms. Is that right? Even, even like most people would kind of assume, well, the government is trustworthy. They would never violate our rights and freedoms. But that's not true, is it, Joanna? 
No, certainly not. You know, absolute power tends to corrupt absolutely. And we've seen that part that governments of all partisan stripes and also at all levels, provincial levels, municipal levels, mm. and of course, in this case, the federal level of government, governments need to be held accountable in order to keep fresh in their minds that mm. they govern according to the boundaries and strictures of our Constitution Act 1867, as well as the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Uh, and so wow. we are a check on those excesses. So do you have a several thousand lawyers like the federal and provincial governments combined? No, we're actually, we're a tiny team of seven full-time staff, um, very dedicated staff that all truly believe in the mission of the organization. And in addition to that, uh, we have the great benefit of working with some of the best constitutional lawyers in Canada, across the country, who uh, are very generous to work with us either on a pro bono or reduced rate basis. Um, but that doesn't mean for free. Legal work is never free. Yes. So if you do support this work, I would encourage you to consider donating at the ccf.ca. Indeed. So there you have it. The, the group that we're talking about today, led by Joanna, is a very special group. They're heroes in our books. They're fighting for the little guy, so to speak, Canadians across this great country for their individual rights and freedoms. So we need to applaud that too today. And so, um, again, to the audience, I'm speaking with Joanna uh, Barron with the Canadian Constitution Foundation. And uh, we're going to get dive into the uh, incredible decision that was just made this past week. Um, so why is this a significant decision? And, and maybe we could just say, like, why at first blush is this a big deal? Yeah. So in 2022, when Justin Trudeau's government invoked the Emergencies Act, of course, on February 14th, that was the first time the act had been invoked in history. Uh, and of course, the Emergencies Act was enacted in the 80s to replace what it was called the War Measures Act, which had actually been abused. It's widely considered by Pierre Elliott Trudeau, uh, the prime minister's father. And so this was the first time that we had a judicial declaration about whether the use of these particular emergency powers was legitimate. Because it was the first time it was invoked, you could say that the government broke the glass on this extraordinary tool that gives the government just absolutely sweeping powers. Some, some lawyers say that it acts as a de facto constitutional amendment, and we'll get into what those tremendous sweeping powers are. So it was the first time it was invoked, and it was the first time, and actually I was speaking to our lawyer, and we think this may be the first time in the world that a government declaration of emergency has been overturned by a judge. And that's an extraordinary thing. And I think it goes to, well, yes, well, if you think about other declarations of emergency, there are things like mudslides and, and typhoons and terrorism. Mm -hmm. yes. um, and of course, as we know, what happened um, in Ottawa and during the Freedom Convoy movement um, was very, very different and a bit more complicated. Mm -hmm. And the politics mm -hmm. were very specific. Um, but as far as we know, this is the first time a judge has struck wow. down a government declaration of emergency. Indeed. So that's a very interesting reference. And of course, we'd have to look at, you know, specifics matter, but yeah. it seems to underline, at least in my perspective, as certainly as I read the judgment and, and certainly very familiar with the context of these protests, seems like another way to underline, um, dare I say, the overreach that the government did in this matter. So uh, that that is very interesting. So 
Let's dive into the context. Why, why did you have the audacity to challenge the government? Uh, and, and who were the other plaintiffs, by the way? I guess we should reference that as well. Yeah, so there were a few individual plaintiffs uh, that were part of the case, although their submissions ended up uh, not really being relied on by the judge. Uh, but we also co-challenged with another great civil liberties organization called the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. Um, and we know because Justice Mosley says so explicitly in his reasons that these we were we were given what's called public interest standing, which means basically, even though we personally didn't have our bank accounts frozen, we personally have no affiliation with the Freedom Convoy. Mm -hmm. um, we saw a broader matter of public interest um, to bring mm -hmm. forward with the court. Mm -hmm. So you as plaintiffs came forward uh, with uh, the civil Canadian Civil Liberties Association, so bravo on them as well. Um, was it a hard decision to make? to mount this challenge and say, yeah, we're going to we're going to approach this. I mean, I think that if we go back on the history, I think a lot of us knew that, wow, this didn't seem to measure up to any uh, definitions of the act. Was this a, a difficult decision to make? Uh, yes and no. On the one hand, it took what I would uh, what's called chutzpah. So, so really guts for me as chutzpah. CEO. Uh, yeah, it, <laughs> it, which, which is kind of like, yeah, some nerve or some courage. Um, I was only a few years into the, uh, the job of executive director. But of course, by the time the government invoked the Emergencies Act, we knew from the media that they were very seriously considering it. I think we knew the night before that it had leaked that this was coming. So we'd had time not just to study the Emergencies Act and the tests that it prescribes, but also speak to really legal experts from across the country. And, you know, certainly I can get something wrong on the law, but if I speak to 10 leading lawyers who have appeared before the Supreme Court of Canada, who in the case of our lawyer, Sujit Chaudhry, uh, was a former dean of Berkeley Law School, former law professor at University of Toronto, faculty of mm. law, and the mm. message I got from everyone, and this is a across, you know, ideologies across ideological mm -hmm. bends is that there is a huge legal problem here. We were pretty confident that no, the very specific test, which I'm mm -hmm. sure we'll get into for invocation of the Emergencies Act was not met. And we just thought, you know, if, if we if if we as the Canadian Constitution Foundation can't act now and act quickly, really what, what's our mandate? What are we doing? What are we exactly. what are we doing with donor yeah. money? So we took a huge bet and we knew that it was possible we would lose, of course. We've lost many times. Uh, but mm. this time, this time it paid off. Well, way to go. So let's talk about the Emergencies Measures Act. I, I, I recall it well as previously it was called the War Measures Act, as you alluded to. And then it was uh, went through a little bit of a um, revision. And I do remember those years. I think uh, the then minister uh, parent Beatties, I recall, kind of carried it forward. And um, so we've got this act. What are the key tests to, to bring it in? Like if it, if it, what are the tests that show that it is, can be legit, legitimately used? Yeah, so there's a few things. First of all, the emergency must be national uh, in mm -hmm. nature, or if not, then the governor and council has to specify it only applies to this area, these areas. In this case, they it applied across the country. Second, it has to be a tool of last resort. And that means that it is incapable of being dealt with by any other law in Canada. And finally, uh, it has to, the, the emergency must represent a threat to the security of Canada. And very importantly, 
and this we have extensive historical uh, evidence about why Minister Beattie particularly insisted on this, that definition of threats to the security of Canada is linked to the same definition in the CSIS Act of threats to the security of Canada. Exactly. Yeah. So there's actually a pretty solid framework for it. And I think that's why I think some people maybe are a little bit caught off guard by the decision that it was unconstitutional because just the previous uh, year, there was a, um, and it's confusing, there was this kind of judicial review. It almost struck me as, as a kind of a, a bizarre review that was undertaken by Rouleau. Um, so, and he, and he said, well, if, if I'm paraphrasing him, but reasonable people could come to both conclusions that it was both uh, inappropriate to have uh, invoked it. And on the other hand, it was justified. So what, how do you help us put that into perspective, Joanna? Yeah, so first, a small correction. Our case was a judicial review, meaning a formal review by a judge. The Rouleau Commission yes. is just a statutory commission that is required by the Act itself, and I think it's a very mm -hmm. good idea. It has no formal legal binding effect, and uh, the, the mandate of that commission was just to look into the circumstances leading up to and surrounding the invoca invocation mm -hmm. of the Act. Of mm -hmm. course, Justice Rouleau, who wasn't he is a judge, but in this capacity, he was not acting as a judge. He was acting as basically a government uh, appointee. Um, mm -hmm. So, of course, it's natural that he would express his view on whether the government was justified in invoking the act. But he understood that this was not a legal uh, exercise. That this would not have binding legal precedent. Justice Mosley's decision does have legal precedent. Okay, so that's a key difference. Yeah. Rouleau's was not really a judicial exercise. It was some type of review yeah. required under the Act. Yes. But it sure did look like some kind of judicial review. I mean, there sure were a lot of cast and air characters that came forward in almost like a theater atmosphere to kind of carry forward and justify the government. Am yeah. I being too cynical, Joanne? Yeah, and and look, I think I think this was an incredibly useful commission. I can't remember a time in Canadian history when we've gotten this volume of evidence about the various players in the government bureaucracy mm -hmm. and in the cabinet and their thoughts. But it just should be emphasized that this was, it, it is confusing. I think the New York Times got this wrong. CBC got this mm -hmm. wrong. But yes. it should just be clear that was not a judicial process. It was a commission, mm -hmm. which we, we've had mm -hmm. the Walker Commission. We have many commissions and they're very useful, mm -hmm. um, but it should just be clear that it had no formal legal binding effect. Um, okay. To get into the substance, though, of why I think Rouleau, uh, who, by the way, I clerked for at the Ontario Court of Appeal. I have a lot of respect for him as a judge mm -hmm. and as a human being. He's a great guy. What he found that I think he put a lot of weight on, and there's an interesting contrast with Justice Mosley, is he looked at this atmosphere of chaos. Because, of course, he's sitting in this room in Ottawa hearing police officer after police officer and RCMP officer, and they're really painting a picture. As you said, it's a theater-like atmosphere. And that theater show is one of chaos. It's just like chaos in Ottawa. Nobody's mm -hmm. speaking to anyone mm -hmm. else. The various levels of police aren't really communicating with each other. Mm -hmm. Rouleau said, well, maybe there were other laws that could dealt with the situation, but there was such a breakdown in communication and in, you know, policing that I'm going to find effectively the federal government had no choice but to step in. Justice Mosley says 
that is very incorrect as a matter of what the, the exactly. law says. The law says yeah. this is not just a tool of convenience. You can't just use mm -hmm. it uh, because it, it's it's you know it's faster. That's not how emergency exactly. powers work. Yeah. Okay. So to the heart of the matter, I like who am I? But my reading of the mostly decision was that it, 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 he incisively got the, the, the facts, the real story, the nuances of it, um, including the fact that senior police officer after police officer and head of intelligence, I don't mean fake intelligence, like a, a prime ministerial appointment, but I mean real heads of intelligence. I'm thinking of um, the head of the OPP intelligence service, they weighed in as real professionals and said there was no threat here. Mm -hmm. This was a peaceful protest, period, full stop. And right then and there, that was the basis in which to assert that they never met a critical test. Am I being too simplistic in this, uh, Joanna? Well, I, I, I think it's not as simple as saying that the evidence was that they said it was a peaceful protest. There's no question that illegal blockades were occurring in Coots, mm -hmm. at the Ambassador Bridge. And by the way, uh, yes, the Freedom Convoy in Ottawa was largely peaceful, but that doesn't mean that there's a right to indefinitely park big rig trucks in downtown sure. Ottawa. So there were real concerns. Um, mm -hmm. However, they did not find that there was any under any credible threat of ideologically motivated violent extremism or physical hmm. violence. Yeah. What was clear was that um, economic harm was happening and this is another key finding of Justice mm -hmm. Mosley is that under the Emergencies Act, a threat to the security of Canada means physical harm to persons or property mm -hmm. and just inconvenience, the Rideau Centre being shut down. While very worrisome, that is not the type of situation that is contemplated by the Emergencies Act. And the day that mm -hmm. Justice Mosley's decision was released, you saw uh, Deputy Prime Minister Christia Freeland taking to the scrum and again, bringing up this point about economic harm and the economic harm of the border blockades, which of course had been cleared by the time that the act was invoked. Exactly. Um, and the clear message from Justice Mosley's decision is that is not what that is not the type of threat that is contemplated by the Emergencies Act. Mm -hmm. Precisely. And I think this is what um, kind of bothers me is that I do remember this history very well day by day. And those issues were all cleared up, the, mm -hmm. including the blockade on the Ambassador Bridge. And it was evident that things had come around, that the uh, truckers were actually um, moving out and creating agreements with the City of Ottawa and others. So I, I think there's a kind of a misinterpretation, sorry, uh, pardon me, a re retelling of history here that is so incisive. And I think that's what part of the judge, mostly to his credit, understood the chronology of this history. History does matter. Facts do matter. So yeah. this is where I get tired of the, what seems like a kind of an endless spin that is really not based on the evidence and the, uh, historically of what happened. Mm -hmm. Again, is that is that how you're viewing it? Yeah, look, I think the way I put it, I have a publication out today in, a pub, uh, in something called Law and Liberty. And I, I think for that moment in time, we all went a little bit crazy. The government went a bit crazy mm -hmm. and some of us citizens mm -hmm. went a bit crazy. And what is so refreshing about Justice Mosley's decision is, yes, it's a very factual, cool-headed chronology of what happened mm -hmm. and when it happened and what tools the government could reasonably have concluded that they were entitled to use. 
And the clear finding is on a, on a you know, clear view of the evidence, the government could not have reasonably concluded that a threat to the security of Canada within the meaning of the Emergencies Act uh, existed, and therefore it was not legally open to them to invoke the act. Right on. Okay, so there's a there's a great piece that um, uh, your team put out that basically says ten key passages from the case, and we're going to quick walk through that. So again, to our audience, uh, love to hear your questions and comments. Um, so if we could di dive into that, uh, uh, Joanna, let's talk about cabinet was not owed extraordinary deference when interpreting the act. What does that mean? Yeah. So one of the, and by the way, as we go through this, I should say, if you go to the ccf.ca, you can just scroll down and you'll see, and you can download that 10 key passages decision for free. We'll email it to you. And it's a pretty useful, yeah, it's pretty good. Uh, you know, all of us read the decision many times, so it's sort of distilled. So getting back to the mm -hmm. point about cabinet. So in a case like this, a judicial review, which is a judge basically reviewing a government action for whether it was legal or constitutional, a really important question is what's called the standard of review. So that's basically, uh, you know, how, how, meticulous, how, should, how meticulous should the judge's inquiry be? How deferential should the judge be to a government mm -hmm. decision? Uh, and here, everybody agreed that the government, of course, to some extent, was owed deference. You know, we're not going to put ourselves literally in the shoes of cabinet. They have to react mm -hmm. to a fast-moving situation. But what the government in court argued was that virtually they should be granted unlimited deference to the point where, mm -hmm. you know, anything short of outright uh, bad faith or negligence or criminal behavior um, should be given a pass. And they referred to the cabinet as an apex decision maker, um, essentially arguing for unfettered executive authority. Um, and mm. Justice Mosley rejected that and, and accepted our arguments in court on this, which is that, yes, of course, cabinet is owed deference um, because of their role. However, they're owed deference only in accordance with the authority granted to them by the law. So here... Okay. Essentially, it's not about the judge going in and poking around, I would have decided this. It's really looking at what did the Emergencies Act prescribe? And as we've discussed hmm. already, the Emergencies Act itself prescribes a very specific legal test. So my only read of what the government's argument was, was basically, yes, there's this test, but you should basically ignore it because just assume that cabinet is yeah. acting in the public interest. That was rejected. Okay. Excellent. So the second one was there was no national emergency within the meaning of the act. And that's pretty well self-evident, is it not? Uh, well, yes. And that goes to kind of two findings. One was that the, the, at that time, given that Coots had been cleared, Windsor, Windsor hmm. had been cleared, the situation was only going mm -hmm. on in Ottawa. Um, but second, um, that a national emergency has to involve threats to of physical damage to persons or property. And Justice Mosley found that did not exist. Exactly. Uh, the third point is the Emergencies Act is a tool or should be a tool of last resort. Yeah, so we've touched on this, that where there are existing laws, which here there were existing criminal laws that would give police all the power they needed to go mm -hmm. in and lawfully and effectively clear the protests. In fact, from what I know, that's what they ended up doing, just wielding mm -hmm. standard policing tactics. 
Um, so it was not a tool of last resort. And here, actually, uh, the government of Alberta made some very useful uh, submissions that were harnessed by the judge that in Alberta's view, in terms of coots, which became an important, important instance, because coots was an instance where, you know, they found guns and weapons. And Alberta's contention was, yes, that was a serious situation, but we had already cleared it without using the emergencies no, act. No, exactly. It had already been cleared. So yeah. remember that. I think we've gone over these already. Four was no threats to the security of Canada within the meaning of the act, no economic harm. And feel free to jump in here, uh, uh, Joanna. But um, the, again, that I think you've spoken to that one. Yes. Number six, banning mere attendance at the protests violated freedom of expression. Imagine that. What, so yeah. what, what was your summary of that one? Yeah, so there's sort of two pieces here that Justice Mosley deals with in, this, in the decision. The first is whether the government had met the threshold to invoke the Emergencies Act. And the second is, after they invoked the act, they actually brought in this suite of new regulations, most famously the regulations which permitted the freezing of bank accounts. But also, I think maybe uh, Canadians have forgotten this by now, there was also extensive new powers to the police to break up peaceful protests if they had any reason, any suspicion that the protest could lead to a breach of the peace. So effectively, right. even if you were a peaceful protester, not in a truck, not honking your horn, just showing up mm -hmm. with a placard at a protest, um, these emergency regulations gave the police the ability to prevent you from expressing your right to lawful free expression. And Justice Mosley, I think, very rightly found that this was a violation of the right to freedom of expression protected in yeah. Section 2B. So that is a, uh, a big deal in terms of finding. And then number seven, the violation of freedom of expression was not a reasonable limit. Yeah. Well, so again, the government had argued this, this is necessary because these protests were spilling over into chaos and crossing the line. And Justice Mosley didn't accept that, certainly not when, when it came to just hmm. peaceful protests. Uh, so it mm -hmm. wasn't a justified limit. The government had not shown that this was a necessary limitation on the right to free expression. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Um, and then eight is a big one you've alluded to. Freezing of bank accounts violated the right to be free of unreasonable search and seizure. Yeah, so this was another extraordinary, I'm happy I can give a little inside baseball to the audience here. This was something that really struck me when I attended the hearing back in April, that the government was actually arguing that the freezing of bank accounts didn't even constitute a search under Section 8 of the Charter. And it was really apparent at the hearing that Justice Mosley wasn't accepting this argument that, you know, how could disclosing, you know, personal financial information and freezing of bank accounts, how could that not constitute mm -hmm. a search? Um, but of course, yes, it was a violation of Section 8. Um, and then maybe we can go to the, the next one, which is that it wasn't justified under Section 1. So here, mm -hmm. uh, we had evidence from the Rouleau Commission that uh, RCMP officers were directing banks to freeze these bank accounts just based on uh, their belief. Uh, there was no, usually in order to seize property like a bank mm -hmm. account, you have an impartial third party, like a judge, uh, mm -hmm. give authorization, in other words, a warrant. And there, you know, there's a standard of, you have to kind of make out a preliminary case that this person is involved with some criminal activity. Very well-established mm -hmm. procedure. 
Here, yes. you didn't have warrants. You just had a list of names that, again, were just based on, on the police's own evidence, just bare belief that these people may be affiliated with the Freedom okay. Convoy. So, 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 Joanna, I want to just clarify this. I don't want to bury the headline. So there were no warrants. No warrants. No warrants. That is so, how unusual is that in our, in our nation's history? As far as I know, it's 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 virtually unprecedented, and to apply it to this uh, this number of individuals is unprecedented uh, in the world, as far as I know. In the world, you're saying? Yeah, this is I mean, unprecedented. Yeah, yeah, it truly is, and and it okay. certainly so has because when, when this decision was announced, it reverberated from coast to coast and around the world, and Canadians should know that. I I, I suspect many are not because. Well, we'll talk about the media later, but this is ridiculous. This is outrageous for a government to do to this action. This is truly out of Soviet Russia. Yeah, sort of, I guess what you can rationally conclude is that if you support a cause that the government personally disagrees with, that the prime minister mm -hmm. personally disagrees with, then you could be at risk of having your livelihood and your family's livelihood, yeah. which, by the way, was Terrible. another point that really concerned Justice Mosley, that it wasn't just... Uh, the individuals connected to the convoy, perhaps based on bare belief, um, that had their accounts frozen. It was also spousal joint bank account holders. So you could have a spouse that had absolutely no involvement who also mm -hmm. would not be able to pay the hydro bill in the middle of winter mm -hmm. in Canada. Right. Yeah, these these poor people that were impacted by this decision were, were left on a limb, like just yeah. totally sideswiped by their government. Yeah. So that they could not undertake their lives. Just totally untoward. Okay, so you're getting me worked up here, uh, mm. uh, Joanna. So number 10, the court may not have reached these conclusions without the CCF. So kudos to you, because uh, that is noticeable in the decision that they they do cite that, that the, the foundation played a helpful role in um, getting a, a nude appreciation for... The arguments at play here. Can you can you help us understand the role that you played in that? Yeah. Well, I'll just I'll I'll read Justice Mosley's words because I couldn't have written them better myself. Yeah, exactly. Uh, he yes. says at the outset of these proceedings, while I had not reached a decision, I was leaning towards the view that the decision to invoke the EA was reasonable. Uh, my preliminary view may have prevailed due to the excellent advocacy on the part of the Attorney General of Canada. Of course, they send their best lawyers. Had I not taken the time to carefully deliberate about the evidence and submissions, particularly those of the CCF and the CCLA, their participation has demonstrated, again, the value of public interest litigants. So exceptional candor and clarity from the judge here that he went in with an open mind. He was leaning towards one side, but doing his job, listening with a you know dispassionate, impartial ear to the facts, the evidence, and the law, he came around to this conclusion. So bravo. Oh, that's great. Uh, that's tremendous if a, a judge weighs in. And, well, for and me, it's a little that. scary, so, right? That that if we yeah. hadn't participated, that this wouldn't have, that this government decision probably would have passed muster. So for yeah. me, it's a little frightening that, you know, at the time, back in 2022, when I was deciding, do I have the chutzpah to take this case? I wasn't thinking that, you know, the freedom of everyone in Canada hinged on it, but mm -hmm. it turned out in a way it did. It really is. So it is a landmark decision. So I do have a question from the audience is that mm -hmm. is, 
So what does this mean for the people that were negatively impacted? Like, I think that the question is getting at, so in the instance of frozen bank accounts and all kinds of things that happened negatively on these people, what's the redress, I guess, is the question. Well, it, it's arguable. So nobody knows 100%. I think the question that maybe this person is getting at is can those people who were impacted, can they uh, launch a lawsuit in civil liability and some type of tort mm -hmm. law against the government? As far as I know, that hasn't happened yet. But I would say certainly this judicial finding that the government acted illegally could only strengthen that case. Mm -hmm. I would say mm -hmm. if anyone is listening who is in that position, you should know that there are strict statutes of limitation, although those statutes of limitation can be extended. So if you do, or if you would like to uh, file a lawsuit against the government, you should move very quickly. Uh, I don't see how this precedent, it can only, uh, it can only help you. Um, but that remains to be seen whether the government okay. will be civilly uh, held liable. Okay, so if you're going to move um, undertake legal action quickly. Uh, and and to, consult uh, with your lawyer. I'm not your lawyer. Consult obviously. with your lawyer. That's a good idea. Work uh, work as a team with your legal counsel. So further to that, could people actually sue these ministers of the Crown personally? Could they sue the Prime Minister? Uh, so there's, there's a lot of uh, ambiguity about... Uh, so basically, it's very hard to find the Crown liable, but there are some exceptions, such as outright bad faith. Um, oh, really? For many reasons, historically, given the history of our Westminster system, we generally don't want, we want governments to be able to act uh, freely mm -hmm. and boldly, mm -hmm. but there are some limited uh, circumstances where governments can be held uh, liable. For okay, but, but you say in bad faith, like if, if there's clear evidence that there was malintent, and, and I'll just yes. back up for a sec. So from our perspective, and, and certainly at Frontier, we've documented this pretty carefully, this is all a huge head scratcher in terms of the introduction of these so-called health mandates against this particular group of people, namely truckers, who spend so much of their time in what are called truck cabs. There wasn't any empirical or shred of data to suggest that there was a reason for this kind of mandate. Um, you know, you're kind of left, well, if, if there's no upfront sharing or transparent sharing of information on the health data, then you've got to kind of wonder, well, what's going on here? Is this mm -hmm. just a political play to weaponize, to demonize? And certainly all the kind of government communications was, these are people of, quote, unacceptable views. We know the kind of planting now in retrospect, but there's a lot of things we know now of what happened in terms of the government's aggressive actions to just completely vilify these people from top to bottom, demonize them. So does that not show malintent? Is this not make them liably, per personally liable for these decisions that they put on the heads of people? My view is that would not be sufficient to show bad faith in terms of things like formulating health policy in general, elected officials have extraordinary, extraordinary wide latitude. but. The hopeful part is that the real remedy for something like that is political and democratic, that if, if you don't accept these policies, if you don't accept how the government acted, you should vote them out. Um, okay. And generally, that is the proper remedy in a Westminster democracy such as ours. Right. Okay. So in the meantime, these people in power have enormous latitude to abuse their citizens. Those are my words. <laughs> 
look, I think there's no question that the prime minister played wedge politics, especially, you know, starting in 2021, the 2021 election. Um, you know, he he formed a view that he could, you know, drill down on a specific base by vilifying another base. Um, and for me, that's a question of democratic politics, and it should be dealt with through that system and those mechanisms. Uh, you don't okay. want to get in a situation where a government, uh, a government doesn't feel that they don't have wide latitude to act. But of course, there are limits, and that's hmm. within the Constitution, and that's where we come in. All right. Okay, so turning to our audience, uh, we welcome those further questions. Uh, I'm talking with Joanna Barron, the Executive Director of the Canadian Constitution Foundation. Uh, and again, uh, congratulations on that in incredible victory and court decision. So as we look at this, what has your, um, in your mind, I certainly have done a, a full scan on the media reporting on this decision. Do you think it's been fair? I think absolutely. There have been a few uh, exceptions to this. So, for example, there was an article last week in CBC Kids um, that had a bunch Sorry, of misinformation. Where was it? CBC Kids. CBC Kids. Yes. Yeah, so it's their their website for, for kids. So I understand that there's a need to simplify some of the information, um, but you can do that without reporting outright misinformation. So mm -hmm. one uh, one misapprehension was that CCF and CCLA represented the truckers. We have no affiliation mm -hmm. with the truckers. We're public interest litigants. And the second was that there were two opposing judicial decisions, one from Justice Rouleau and one from Justice Mosley. Of course, I understand the confusion, but you would hope a reporter would do some, you know, ba basic looking into the matter before they but reported. what a surprise from the CBC, no less. Yeah. Yeah. But on the Isn't whole, my, my sense is that time is on our side, on the side of people who care about our constitutionally protected liberties. And I think many people, even some people who nominally supported the invocation of the act at the time, now we can look, look back two years later and say, okay, that was a bit crazy. <laughs> okay. Because it is interesting. Like, I just marvel at this whole train wreck as a kind of a case study. Because the, the, the media has just not all, but many have just given enormous cover and uh, unusual deference uh, mm -hmm. to uh, the claims made by the federal government. I don't mean that in any partisan way, but we've got to always be driving to truth and facts here. And I, I just always marvel at the decision. I know I remember uh, years ago when this un unfolded, um, the the Miracle Network even sent a crew of uh, hardworking uh, journalists all the way to Ottawa to actually follow on the ground what was happening. And they they had the mandate to follow the good, bad, and the ugly of the story. And it's amazing. They kept looking into the claims of stories. Oh, these truckers are are littering. They're, they're uh, stealing food from food banks. They're doing this and that. And it was just the opposite story. I mean, it was, it's almost like a kind of a, uh, again, I don't know what to say, a Pravda operation where the the people that we trusted on the ground were saying no that is just simply not accurate so it's really quite a almost a disturbing thing because i think that one one of the things i really respected about the decision was that that judge gets the bigger picture of how important in a free and democratic society information and evidence and the respect for the rule of law is to our society were you impressed by that as well? 
Oh, absolutely. And Justice Mosley is one of the leading national security experts in Canadian law. And yes, I think you really get the impression of a sober, dispassionate jurist, which mm -hmm. is exactly what we want from our judges. I wish we could have a thousand Justice Mosleys. So we need to duplicate this gentleman's DNA and... So I think he's close to retirement, unfortunately. So I think yeah. this was this will be a legacy-defining right. judgment for him. So as you look to this decision, um, what are you hoping will come out of this? Like, what do you think is kind of the the legacy, if you will, the the after effects of this that you're really hoping for that Canadians recognize? And then I want to talk more about actions that we can all take as citizens. But any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that the main thing is just that any future government has to be very meticulous, scrupulous, and, you know, very cognizant of the law before they invoked emergency powers. And the real mm -hmm. fear, if the decision had not gone this way, is that it would kind of send a signal to future governments, which could be conservative, liberal, NDP, doesn't matter. That, you know, hmm. if you need this political, you know, if you need this political break the glass in case of emergency, don't worry too much. Uh, you mm -hmm. won't be held. You know, judges will basically let it slide and just mm -hmm. trust you if you say that you thought that it was necessary. But the message is very clear that, no, there's a very stringent test. And another thing I want to make clear, uh, a lot I've heard a lot of people saying the Emergencies Act was found unconstitutional. That's not true. The Emergencies Act was found to be good law, uh, settled mm -hmm. law. It's the mm -hmm. government's invocation of the Emergencies yes, Act that was indeed. found to be yeah, illegal. Huge difference. So, we have a very solid law here. It was very well thought out, well, mm -hmm. very well thought through, following some of the perceived overreaches of the Pierre Elliott Trudeau government with the War Measures Act. So there are reasons mm -hmm. why you have the last resort clause. There are reasons why you want, mm -hmm. you know, ex an external standard like the CSIS Act, so that it's not mm -hmm. just cabinet acting in a vacuum. And so what I think is really important about this decision is that it shows that those provisions are going to be given teeth and future governments just have to be very meticulous um, and not act mm -hmm. out of a sort of political panic, which it looks like is what happened here. Okay. So I think that's a very wise summation. I want to come back to you though and say, okay, we have a government that likes to cry wolf and smash the glass and invoke this kind of kind of emergency Me measures act it's sh it's shown to be unconstitutional and my question is did they really panic or is this a kind of a pattern that we've seen time and time again where we're not really acting on policy and dare i say good faith but rather on kind of cynical communication narrative telling and you know kind of spinning yards to vilify political opponents it's a form of lawfare damn it is it not that their people are using the law against their rights and freedoms to peacefully protest and this is unconscionable and i think this does immeasurable harm to our institutions and trust in the people that we think should be safeguarding our rights and freedoms instead they're out there undermining it am i being too cynical or am i looking at things with my eyes open i look i'm not as cynical as you i do genuinely think there was a lot of panic and from the evidence that we saw through low commission there was a lot of panic and there was a lot of frustration at i think there's no question that the ottawa police service 
made a lot of mistakes. There was a whole cascade of failures. So I think we learned that our institutions um, didn't act as swiftly um, and effectively as we would have liked. Um, so I, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm halfway in your camp. I think okay. certainly there was an arrogance. I really think that the the federal government thought they would get away with this. All right. So you say it, you say it very diplomatically and I admire you for doing so. They were arrogant. And I would I would flip it a little bit and I would say, you know, as a formerly elected official and as a person of good faith as a Canadian, when I would have people come to me as delegations with a concern, I would sit down with them and I would respectfully listen to their concern. I wouldn't vilify them even before they've got to to my office. Yeah. I would sit down with them and serve them a cup of tea and sit and listen. But yeah. they didn't even do that. So no. that doesn't show good. No, faith the prime minister was was at his uh his cottage at Harrington Lake, as far as I know. Like who does that? That's not yeah. leadership. That's 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 something else. So, anyways, I think I've made my point, and I don't mean to to belabor it, but I, I think that there's some really severe lessons that I think Canadians need to to open their eyes up to. Um, so where do we go from here? Um because the response, further to a little bit of what I just said, the response from the Deputy Prime Minister, what is her name again? Oh, yeah, Christian Freeland, in all caps on Twitter, as I recall, says, bring it on. That was the response. Bring it on. Like, uh, I, I think mean? that was actually my litigation director in response to Christian Freeland announcing oh, the government would appeal. I, I, we, and we okay. said, bring it on. <laughs> Okay, sorry. My apologies. Okay, so what was the government's response? To be clear, there was never any apologies or said, well, you know, by golly, we're going to sit and reflect on this matter and go from there. So stay tuned. There was none of that. It was a fairly quick response, was it not? Just to, we're going to appeal it. Well, so first of all, the response from the government came about 20 to 30 minutes after the decision was released. The decision is 190 pages long. I'm a pretty fast reader. My team and I have been eating, okay. sleeping, and breathing this decision so for years. So what does that years. tell you? So yeah, it took us a, a solid two hours to, to do okay. a first pass. But, but what does this tell you? It, it tells you she didn't read the decision and the decision to say, we disagree. We, there was, you know, the customary, we, we respect, the, you know, the judge, uh, but we disagree. She didn't read the decision. It was a purely political uh, decision. I also found it exceptional. Um, that it was a politician who announced this, not the attorney general, who will actually be Yes, that's right. And and why is that significant, just for the audience? Because these are unique positions with statutory responsibility, right? Yes, yes. So it, it's actually the attorney general that will be filing the notice of appeal. Uh, of course, yes. they take direction from the government. But it just goes to the fact that this is not about a disagreement on the law because she didn't read the case. Yeah. Um, this is a political survival at this point exactly yeah no this is this is uh making a political point it's not it doesn't show a deference or interest in the court let alone the judge i mean i i saw that as a slap in the face to the judge this is a this is a disrespectful signal to the judiciary that we're just we're just on our train we're going to pursue a mission of of a political message and we don't we don't care about the facts. I mean, this is just, anyway, so that's part of where you, you sense a little bit of the edge on my end uh, on behalf of the Canadian people. Yeah, I, I certainly would have pre preferred if they had taken 24 hours to digest the decision and then decided, you know, we have legal disagreements. 
but it was just, it was extremely clear that this was a knee-jerk political reaction. Right on. Well, in the world of public policy, let alone law, facts do matter, or they should matter. And we should be able to also have an atmosphere of healthy, respectful discourse. And that also means vigorous debate. How, what has been the impact of the invocation of the Emergencies Act on that very reality, the culture, if you will, culture matters in our country for the sake of our democracy. How has this impacted our country, Joanna? Well, there's many ways that I could go with that. On the one hand, there is the what we spoke about earlier, that one thing that you can draw from this is that this is a government that's willing to take measures like freeze bank accounts without a warrant if you support a cause they personally disagree with, okay. not break the mm -hmm. law, not do any vandalism or hooliganism, and that is a very worrying precedent for free speech. And by the way, I am aware uh, that central banks around the world are angry that this happened because it casts all developed nations into a very questionable light. So it really sent shockwaves around the world. It did. Um, but there's another angle, which is that the invocation of the Emergencies Act was popularly supported by a major majority of Canadians. We know that. I think the number is somewhere in the 70s at the time. And 70s. why do you think that was, Joanna? I, I think because of the wedge politics and because of the media demonization of convoy of protesters. The, the media yes. gave them cover. Yes. The media gave them cover. The Canadians were put into a dark room like mushrooms. Yes. And fed an awful lot of things that, as per the decision, were blatantly false and incorrect. Yeah. This is the real story. So so one hopes that this decision um, will lead some Canadians who supported the decision at that the decision to invoke at the time will cast that into some doubt or at least inspire some critical thinking. Um, but it also mm -hmm. says a lot about our culture of civil liberties. I myself had family members who came up to me at family dinners and who knew I was involved mm -hmm. in this litigation and said, oh, but there were very dangerous people there. I said, did you go? Mm -hmm. did, like, did you... Were you at, were you in Ottawa? Like uh, on their bounce, like the bouncy castles, that was dangerous yeah. or what? Yeah. Um, but I yeah. understand that fear is a very powerful motivator. It is, yeah. 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 And, and, and so, yeah, in all fairness, we need to have compassion with um, our fellow Canadians. I mean, I have compassion for people that have just been led astray on so many points, uh, frankly, lies. Um, you know, and, and it's it's really a tragic state then of discourse in our country. And, and then it has impacts on people's relationships, uh, all the family gatherings and all the rest. I mean, it's really yeah. kind of pathetic. But it does show that things are not all quite what they have been told to be. And so this uh, surely could then be, um, what would you say, a, an opportunity of hope, little green blades of, of shoots of grass that are showing up that would give us cause for hope that maybe perhaps this could be a time of renewal for freedom? Is that your hope? I think so. I think just being aware of the decision isn't enough. This is actually a personal passion of mine and my teams because we mm -hmm. really think education is the essential thing here. It's, mm -hmm. you know, it's you. people simply don't have the awareness of the, the freedoms that are guaranteed to us under the Constitution and why those are so historically salient and important. Indeed. Um, I actually yeah. co-authored a book with my colleague, Christine Van Dyne, called Pandemic Panic, which goes into all of the rights abuses that happened mm -hmm. over the course of the pandemic. And I have to say, in uh, almost every case, judges were not brave. Judges said, okay, there's a 
there's a public health emergency. So let's just freedom of expression goes out the door. Equality goes out the door. Freedom of religion goes out the door. And it details all of the constitutional overreaches. Um, And it's quite a moderate book. You know, we're we're not extremists. uh, We're very moderate. But Mm -hmm. I think if you read the Mm -hmm. book, it's hard to read the book and not come away from the conclusion that something in our system failed us. And we as citizens failed to to hold our elected officials to account. Um, We also do a number of free e-courses at the CCF. You can go to the ccf.ca forward slash learn, take free courses on freedom of of speech, fundamental freedoms. Um, Like it has to start with an educated and engaged group of Canadians if we're to have any hope. Because we've seen if we don't have this education, the media can treat us, as you said, like a like a bunch of mushrooms in a cellar. So those are wonderful resources. Uh, that's it sounds like a very intriguing book. Um, but I, I think your challenge to each of us as citizens is very, very apropos. Uh, we need to to uh, increase our level of awareness here and not take our individual rights and freedoms for granted. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is for sure. So, um, so th- th- this uh, decision will go to appeal. Uh, what's the time frame around that? So we expect to receive the government's notice of appeal within about two weeks. They have 30 days from the day of the decision to file it. From there, mm-hmm. I would expect that it will be heard in the next in the coming months at the Federal Court of Appeal um, with hopefully a decision by the end of the year. Uh, appellate decisions are a somewhat mm-hmm. uh, quicker process because mm-hmm. it's just a question of correctness on the law. Um, and then the decision may or may not finally get appealed to the Supreme Court of Canada um, where there's some speculation that if we win at the federal court of appeal, which I believe we will, because I believe we're correct on the law, um, mm-hmm. and there's a change of government, um, a new prime minister may not want to appeal that decision to the Supreme Court of Canada. Mm-hmm. But that's highly speculative. So we're, we're hopeful. We're very confident in our position at law. Indeed. Well, let let us be hopeful. It's uh, it's really a again a stunning decision. Mm-hmm and uh, speaks volumes of um, really the grievous impact and and decision-making the government undertook. I did have one um, quick question, and just to clarify uh, from the audience, so is it possible then to potentially undertake a lawsuit against your bank uh, that froze your bank account, to be clear? Well, the banks were acting under uh, a directive from the government, and banks are very tightly regulated in Canada, um, so mm-hmm. I would, you know, I can't give legal advice. I'm not your lawyer, but I would say mm-hmm. it's most likely you've got uh, you've got you've got a beef with the government in this instance rather than your banks. Banks do okay. have but, to respond. But in this case, though, yeah. were there any banks that said no? No, we're not going to freeze these people's bank accounts. There may be, and I don't want to wrap them out if there were. That's all I'll say. Okay, but. In this context, though, I guess it behooves, if we're talking about the theme of citizen action, there's a lot that citizens can do. They can support teams like you. They can speak with their bank and at least complain and say, you guys were out of line and never again. Or they can even take their business elsewhere, can't they? Oh, absolutely. I would encourage every Canadian. Why would you put up, pardon me? Ask the, ask their bank, ask your bank for their policy about this and whether they would be willing to debank you yeah. uh, without a warrant. Yeah, th- th- this is stunning decision making. You're, you're, you're freezing people's bank accounts without a warrant. Like what government does that? 
And you said it was the first in the world scene. I mean, yeah. in the in the Western kind of democratic tradition, yes. no yes. less. But this is the point. It would make the the Communist Party of China blush of the, the kind of um, nonsense that this government pursued. So we need to call that out. And citizens have a lot more power than they realize. This is my my suggestion is that they have an opportunity to have a heart to heart with their banker and say, gosh, you kind of betrayed me. What the what the heck happened? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It, it starts with this individual vigilance. If banks get enough of these complaints, they will then go complain to the government and say, what yeah. the heck happened? <laughs> exactly. Because on the other side, we know that banks and so many others in this country are all going woke. I say that generally in terms of this ESG or environmental social governance nonsense, which is actually arguably um, undermining the performance of your money. So they're trying to use your money as a vehicle to undertake um, the, 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 the woke activist causes of, of, of a bunch of activists. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. So this is all connected to the hip here when we talk about concerns regarding, you know, the trust in currency, uh, including digital currency in particular, because this is this was a serious, grievous error of our rights and freedoms. And we're much more vulnerable than we realize, aren't we, uh, Joanna, to these kinds of infractions now? Uh, yes, although hopefully this decision is a brick in the wall of rebuilding, rebuilding Indeed. the fortress around our constitutionally guaranteed liberties. Indeed. So as we rebuild uh, brick by brick, um, other suggestions for actions that citizens can do. Is it worth a phone call to the representative? Um, representative? I, I want to give you an example. Today we heard about, uh, what, what is his name? Oh yeah, Charlie Angus, the MP for Timmins James Bay, tabled a private member's bill saying that anyone advocating for uh, the promotion of fossil fuels and should be, should be getting jail time and massive fines. So this is like, wow, we've got we've got members of parliament that have extraordinarily strong totalitarian impulses here. They don't get the constitution. They don't get the importance of freedom of speech for our democracy. Does that concern you? Absolutely. It concerns me because the constitution is meant to bind all actors in the government, the rights that we as citizens have against the government. They, they, the charter rights are not owned by the judiciary. Members of parliament should see them equally bound by uh, the confines and the limitations of charter rights. So um, I would suggest that, again, vote those people out, hold them accountable at the ballot box. Give them a call. And uh, that's right. Exercise your, your, uh, your um, vote and speak up. Well, look, it's been a pleasure to talk with you, uh, Joanna Barron, and, and I'm just, uh, again, congratulations to you and your, your team and all the other platons involved for this moment in Canadian history where a uh, senior judge has weighed in and uh, has really spoken up for the cause of freedom and individual rights. So congratulations, Joanna. Thank you, David. Okay, so we're wrapping things up here. And uh, as you know, every Thursday we have this live discussion. Please share the news uh, of this recording uh, if you've seen it. Uh, this is an important discussion that every Canadian uh, should be hearing about. And we're delighted that every one of you could join us. We thank you for your questions and comments and look forward to next Thursday. And also be sure to like uh, the program 
And be sure to uh, tune in also for the episodes that come out every Tuesday on the TV program, on all our social media, Leaders on the Frontier. Thank you for joining us.